along in your Bibles, I'd recommend that you open them up to Matthew chapter 3. Third chapter of Matthew, that's where we'll find the text that we want to look at together for a, a few moments this morning. But I'm going to begin by reading a passage from the 10th chapter of Acts, and I want you to just listen as I read from Acts chapter 10. I'll start reading as soon as I open up to it. Acts chapter 10, uh, beginning in verse number 34. Peter opened his mouth and he said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he's Lord of all, you yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. There's a story that's told about a little girl who wanted to be baptized, but her mother wasn't quite sure that she was ready. She was very young, and so she wanted her to go through some classes first to make sure that she understood what it was all about. Now, after class one day, her mother got her in the car, and she asked, well, honey, what does baptism mean? The girl thought for a moment, Finally, she said, well, it's not the water that makes you clean. And her mom thought, okay, she, she's understanding, that's good. She wasn't finished. Little girl smiled brightly. She said, it's not the water that makes you clean, it's the soap. Obviously, she wasn't quite ready. <laughs> she didn't exactly understand the significance of baptism. But that's not surprising because baptism is one of the most misunderstood topics. It's a very rich topic, but it's often misunderstood. And I'm not just talking here about uh, debates over immersion versus other methods or debates over infant baptism versus believer's baptism. Think about this. If we were to sort of go around the room, have a discussion group today, and I were to ask you to think of some things that you associate with baptism, we would probably come up with a list of things like salvation, forgiveness of sins, being added to the church, the gift of the Holy Spirit. All those things are accurate, and all of those are, are wonderful blessings that God bestows on those who respond to his gracious offer in penitent faith and in baptism. But then we come to a story in Matthew chapter 3. And even though this is fairly familiar to us, 
I'm not sure we know exactly what to make of it. Or do we ever think about how this baptism of Jesus relates to our own baptisms? In liturgical religious groups, that is groups that follow a set calendar of readings and you have one Sunday set aside for specific things, this is the Sunday that's dedicated to Jesus' baptism. And even though we don't follow that, I like to actually glance at it from time to time because it helps me to remain balanced in my preaching. Sometimes you end up talking about things that you wouldn't otherwise talk about. And especially in light of the fact that we had a couple of baptisms last Sunday morning, if you're here in our Acts class on Wednesday night, we're actually talking about some of the ramifications of John's baptism. This seemed to me to be particularly timely. All three synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, record an account of Jesus' baptism, but Matthew's is the one who goes into the most detailed. John the Baptist is down at the Jordan River. He has the mission of preparing the way for Jesus. Matthew points this out. He quotes from Isaiah chapter 40, verse number 3, there in Matthew 3, 3. This is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. John was sent to prepare the way for Jesus. How did he do that? By telling people that they were sinners and that they needed to repent. That is to turn to God and to be baptized for the forgiveness of their sins because the kingdom of God, his reign, was at hand. It was breaking in, picking up in verse number five. Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him. And they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the tree. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. John told people that a time of judgment was coming, a time of wrath from God was coming. And so because of this, they needed to repent. They needed to get right with God or else the axe was going to be laid to the tree. John is preparing the way for Jesus, and in doing so, he had to get people to recognize they were sinners so that they could see what it was they needed that Jesus was offering. And so people came to him from all around Judea, tax collectors, soldiers, even Pharisees and Sadducees, as we read there. It seems that everybody knew about him, and they all showed up to hear him preach, many to be baptized, the rest at least to see what this was all about, what's going on out here. But then one day along comes Jesus, the Lord who John has been preparing the way for all of this time. And suddenly John's perplexed. He's puzzled by what's going on here. Jesus requests to be baptized by John. In fact, verse number 13 tells us that he came down there from Galilee to the Jordan specifically for that purpose. But John would have prevented him 
saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? This isn't what John expected. This wasn't in keeping with the purpose he thought he'd been given, and he's almost incredulous here. But what do you mean, baptized you? You're the one who ought to be baptizing me. But Jesus responds, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And then he consented. In other words, Jesus is telling John, this is what you were sent to do. This is the fulfillment of your mission. You see, in some way, John baptizing Jesus prepared the way for him. But John's confused here. His baptism was for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus had no need of forgiveness. In fact, John himself says in John chapter 1, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He's the spotless, sinless Son of God. He doesn't need forgiveness. So the question then is, why was Jesus baptized? That's the question we want to spend a few minutes answering today. Why was Jesus baptized? And there are Four reasons we'll submit, or, or two, uh, if you want to think of it that way, two with a few sub-reasons, four altogether. The first reason is that this was a sign that Jesus was completely devoted to following the will of God. That seems to be what he means when he says that this will fulfill all righteousness. Righteousness is right conduct. That is the sort of activity or action you would expect from someone who is right with God. Now, John's message was for all of the Jewish nation in its scope. God's kingdom, his reign, that that all the prophets had been looking forward to for so long, it's here, it's at hand, it's breaking in now. And because of that, you need to get ready. You need to repent. That is, you need to turn to God and turn away from your sins, and you need to reorient your life to this new coming kingdom. But of course, as John's puzzlement indicates, Jesus didn't have any sin to repent of. He didn't need to do that in the same way other people did. For Jesus, this is a public declaration of his love for God and the fact that he completely and totally submits to God's will. I want you to fast forward to the end of his life. Think about him in the Garden of Gethsemane, the night that he's betrayed, the night before his death, and he's there praying, and you'll recall that he says, knowing he's going to die on the cross, Father, if you're willing, take this cup from me. But not my will, but your will be done. This is the ultimate submission to the Father's will, to be willing to go to the cross for our sakes. But Jesus' baptism shows us that he submitted to the Father's will from the very beginning. He was committed to it. He was set apart for it. He was consecrated to it. And he was approved by God. The second reason for Jesus' baptism is that it served as an example to his followers. And that means ultimately to us. 
the call for baptism for the forgiveness of sins extends to everyone because, as Paul puts it, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now, Jesus didn't sin, but he is the preeminent example to us in all things. And he commanded his followers to be baptized, right? You think of the Great Commission in Matthew's Gospel, Matthew chapter 28, after his resurrection, he says, Go, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I've commanded you. Well, here he is taking the lead in that. Jesus expects you to be baptized. Well, he was baptized himself. He's setting an example for his followers to follow. All of this is really summed up in a a third reason that connects to these first two, brings it all together. And that is that in his baptism, Jesus identifies with his people. Some of you might have read the book, The Hiding Place, by Corrie ten Boom. She tells about her family who were Dutch Christians in the Netherlands during World War II. After the Nazis took over, they spent a good deal of time and effort hiding Jews, helping many of them to escape from an otherwise gruesome fate. But in all this, she tells a really interesting story about her father, Caspar Tenbu. If you remember anything about World War II and the Nazis' treatment of Jews in occupied areas, eventually they made them all get a Star of David and wear that prominently on their clothing so they could be identified. Caspar Ten Boom went and stood in line and voluntarily got a star so that he could wear it on his clothing too. He wasn't a Jew. He didn't have to do that. But he was so invested in these people that he was praying for and that he was working for that he wanted to identify with them. Wanted to identify with them to the extent that he was willing to wear publicly this symbol of shame and of humiliation and subject himself to persecution. All for the sake of these people that he loved. He didn't have to wear the star. He chose to do it. And I think that sums up what Jesus is doing here. I think that's the real key to understanding Jesus' baptism. He loved us so much that he chose to identify with us. Though he was God, he took on human form, poured his divinity out into the form of a servant, a slave, Paul says in Philippians chapter 2. He became just like us with everything that entails. And of course, ultimately, he loved us to the extent that he was willing to take our sins upon him. That's how much he identified with us. Going to the cross to die for us. What does that mean for us practically today? I think about a well-known passage from Hebrews chapter 4 where the writer says, we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but was tempted in every way, just like we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us approach the throne of grace with confidence or with boldness that we may find grace and receive mercy to help us 
in our time of need. Jesus identified with us so completely that we can approach God with confidence, with boldness. We can know that God knows what it is that we're going through. He understands. And he cares. He's interested in us and in our lives. I'm reminded of what the prophet Isaiah writes in Isaiah chapter 53, that great song of the suffering servant. He was numbered with the transgressors, and he bare the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. You see, the point is, Jesus wasn't standing down front with John offering the invitation. Jesus wasn't even there baptizing John and calling on everyone else to repent. Jesus was down there in the water with the transgressors, with the sinners, identifying with them, identifying as one of them in solidarity. He gave us an example to follow in that. An example of submitting to God's will. There's a fourth and final reason I want to note, or a second category of reason, if you want to look at it that way, since that third one summed up the first two. And that is that Jesus' baptism by John was the beginning of his ministry. When Jesus was baptized, this is Matthew 3, 16, immediately he went up from the water and behold, the heavens were opened to him and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. Following this, Jesus goes out in the wilderness and he's tempted by the devil. Then he comes back and immediately he begins to preach. But you think about his life up to this point, For 30 years, Jesus had been pretty much an average, ordinary guy. He grew up in Nazareth. He apprenticed under his father as a carpenter. He opened his own carpentry business himself. This event is what marks the change. In Luke chapter 3, when he records his baptism, Luke then says, now Jesus himself was about 30 years old when he began his ministry, Luke 3, 23. Mark begins his gospel account with Jesus' baptism. He says in the first verse, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and then he goes right in to John the Baptist and Jesus' baptism there. This is the starting point, submitting to God's will, being publicly declared to be his son, the descent of the Spirit of God. That announcement, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Think about that passage that we read from Acts chapter 10 at the outset. If you thought I was never going to get back to that or they had had no relation to anything, this is the point. When Peter is preaching there to Cornelius about Jesus, he says that it all began with John baptizing out in the wilderness. That was the beginning. Everything after that, all of those good works that Peter recounts in that sermon everything that we read in the gospel accounts followed from that. He went about doing good. He healed all manner of disease. He cast demons out of people. Ultimately, he went to the cross and died for us, but death couldn't hold him. On the third day, God raised him from the dead, and now he reigns at the right hand of God, and this offer of forgiveness is extended to anyone in his name who will respond in faith and repentance 
and baptism. All that work begins at his baptism, the inauguration of his ministry. And maybe you've never really thought about any of that before. And I, I hope we've answered somewhat the question of why Jesus was baptized, but maybe at this point you're saying to yourself, all right, well, that's interesting. Maybe make a good Bible class or you should write a commentary or something like that, but what relevance does that have for us today? What's the point? This is the so what question. Is this just an academic issue or does this have relevance for us? Yes, it does. Because Jesus commands all of his followers to be baptized. And what I submit to you is that Jesus' baptism is the foundation of Christian baptism. Think about all those things we listed off in the introduction that you might typically associate with baptism. Forgiveness of sins, uh, being now counted as part of God's people, uh, receiving the gift of the Holy Spirit. All of these things are present here in Jesus' baptism. We've already seen, seen that usual association with forgiveness of sins. That's implicit there in John's reluctance to baptize him. I, I can't baptize you. You need to be baptizing me. It's explicit in Mark's account and Luke's account. They say clearly that John's baptism was for the forgiveness of sins. We've also seen here in this text that association with being a child of God, with the gift of the Holy Spirit. At his baptism, the Spirit of God descended on Jesus in the form of a dove. That voice from heaven said, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. Well, in just the same way, at our baptism, we're declared to be God's children. And we receive the gift of his Spirit. Listen to what Paul says in Galatians chapter 3, beginning in verse 26. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. He goes on just a few sentences later in chapter 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. See, this sets our baptism apart from the one offered by John. John's baptism brought forgiveness of sins, yeah. But John baptized only with water. He himself said, there's one coming after me who'll baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Our baptism is different from John's, but it's just like Jesus' baptism. We receive the Spirit of God into our hearts. We're declared to be his sons. In other words, we are baptized because Jesus was baptized with everything that means that we've talked about today. But the second thing here, just as baptism was the beginning of Jesus' ministry, it's the beginning of a new life for us, too. Far too often, we seem to think of baptism and we treat baptism like it's the end, like it's the goal. 
How many times have you heard somebody say that, well, you know, I, I know I need to be right with God. I need to be baptized. I'm just going to get everything straight in my life. Then I'm going to be baptized. You heard people say that? I have. That's the exact opposite way of how we ought to be looking at this. Tristan and Brooks were baptized last Sunday. That's a tremendous thing. I had a conversation with them a a few weeks ago because they're both uh, really active, really involved, grown up going to church, and I just asked them, why is it that you haven't decided to be baptized yet? And essentially, they both said, well, we just haven't felt ready to make that commitment yet. Haven't been ready to take that step. And what I told them, and the point that I'm making here more generally, is that if we wait till we're ready, or we think we're ready to make that commitment, whether that's the fact that we think we're not all we ought to be and we need to get sin out of our life, or whether it is that we think we don't know enough and we need to grow in knowledge, or whether it is that we think that uh, maybe we're just not ready to take that step and be committed, well, if you wait till you think you're ready, you'll never be ready. Because we realize as we go along that we never really do know enough. And we're never as committed as we ought to be. And certainly we all still struggle with sins in our lives. Baptism is the beginning, not the ending. But it's no wonder that people get that backwards sometimes because I I feel so often we treat baptism as if it's the goal. How many times have we heard sermons, you need to hear, you need to believe, you need to repent, you need to confess, and you need to be baptized. And then when someone's baptized, it's like, boom, there it is, all right. Mission accomplished, let's go on to the next one. We leave people at the water's edge without any sort of training and discipleship, without any sort of further growth, and we wonder why it is that people are baptized and they just eventually drift away. Baptism isn't the end. It's not the goal. It's the beginning of this new life in Christ. We're a new creation, Paul says, just like it was for Jesus Just as he was empowered to begin his ministry after his baptism, we too are recreated to begin this new life of service to God, going about doing good to others, going about and telling others the good news of the kingdom. I think all these threads are brought together by Paul in a passage in Romans 6 better than anywhere else, and I'm going to read this to you at length but I want you to listen closely because this really sums up our message this morning. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who've been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we've been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who's died has been set free from sin. Now, if we've died with Christ, we believe that we'll also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. 
For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. In our baptism, we are identified with Christ, with his death, with his resurrection, and that means our old selves are put to death. They're gone, they're dead, and they're buried. Now instead, like Christ, we're raised up to become instruments of righteousness. And we have this wonderful promise at the end of the chapter that if we do that, the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. If you're here this morning and you've never submitted to baptism, I want to invite you to do that. We're going to sing an invitation song in just a few minutes. It's going to ask, are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? I want to invite you to do that. There's power in the blood. Not only is it the Lord's command, but it's the Lord's example. And if we would be his followers, we need to follow his example in all things. Maybe you're here this morning, you already are a Christian. You've been baptized, but remember, that was only the beginning. You strayed from that path. You need to recommit yourself to that life of serving God. Whatever your need may be this morning, if we can help you in any way, it's the Lord's invitation while we stand and while we sing. Have you been to Jesus for the cleansing power? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? Are you fully trusting in his graces, our? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? Are you washed in the blood, in the soul-cleansing blood of the Lamb? Are your garments <coughs> white as snow? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? Lay aside the garments that are 